Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with counterterrorism expert David Gartenstein Ross. He's the author of Bin Laden's Legacy, Why We're Still Losing the War on Terror, uh, Homegrown Terrorists, uh, My Year Inside Radical Islam, and a number of other books. Um, really fascinating guy who understands uh, what motivates people to jo- join terrorist organizations how those organizations are learning rather than static, and how we can best combat them. Uh, Before we get to that conversation, uh, we could use your support. We need your support. There's a number of ways you can do that. You can become a Patreon supporter of the podcast. That's the most tangible, obvious way to do that. Uh, You can go to www.patreon.com slash podcast and find us. Uh, you can also become a member of our Facebook group. Just put in like Phil and you'll find us. You can follow us on Twitter um, at, at the like Phil pod. Uh, we're also on Instagram now. If you put in like Phil, you'll find us there. Uh, so this podcast is brought to you in part by our Patreon supporters. It's also brought to you by our sponsors. The sponsors of this episode are Seb Furtado Photography. Sebastian Furtado is a professional photographer who offers private online photography courses for all levels. This episode is also brought to you by Good Mix Foods. This is a wonderful kind of granola type thing. It's a mixture of seeds and nuts and dried fruits. It's very, very healthy, very good for you. It's made in Vermont, wonderful stuff. You can buy it on Amazon, among other places. If you use the discount code LIKEVILLE15, you can get a 15% discount on your order. I've been having this stuff for breakfast every single day for for months now, and it's uh, it has wonderful effects. It's very good for your digestion. It's very filling. Great stuff. Uh, this episode is also brought to you by Elsa's Bar. If you live in Montreal, you probably know about Elsa's. It's right in the middle of the plateau on Roy Street, the corner of Roy and Du Billion. If you are planning on visiting Montreal, highly recommend that you check out Elsa's. It has a wonderful atmosphere, really good food, um, fantastic place. Uh, this episode is also brought to you by Café Lalie, Galerie des Artistes, Galerie d'Art. This is a family-owned fine art gallery café in an amazing space in St. Henry. They have wonderful coffee, great art, it's a wonderful place. Check it out if you are in Montreal, St. Henry neighborhood. All right. Without further ado, I give you David Gartenstein Ross. Hey, welcome to the Likeville podcast. At, I'm John Faithful Hamer. Today, we're going to be talking with counterterrorism expert David Gartenstein Ross about his book, um, <laughs> Bin Laden's Legacy, and about ISIS and where uh, radicalization is going in the future. Hello, David. Hi, John. It's great to join you. Uh, and you wrote, uh, I read two of your books. I read one of your books completely by accident a few years ago, uh, the book about your uh, sort of brief flirtation with uh, with radical uh, radical uh, radicalization and sort of the process because I, I teach a class called uh, Good and Evil, 
And one of the things that we talk about there, I mean, we read uh, Philip Zimbardo's The Lucifer Effect, Understanding How Good People Turn Evil, and you know a number of other things. But I, I really try and get the students to understand how uh, radicalization happens. And so I did a, a really broad search on lots of books that deal with this. And somebody mentioned your book, right? And this is like you know, a while ago. And then most recently, when uh, Sebastian found you, um, I read your your book, Bin Laden's Legacy, which is a fantastic analysis of uh, Al-Qaeda's legacy. But uh, but anyway, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. It's, yeah. it's great to join you. And um, as I was telling Sebastian before uh, we started, um, I, I think this is a really valuable podcast. Um, what you're putting forward is um, you had really good guests and um, really detailed conversations. I know how much a labor of love it is to put a podcast together. Um, so <laughs> thank you for doing this. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this must be a very, I mean, I say this in a sort of macabre way, but uh, this must be a very exciting time to be a, a counterterrorism expert like you. I mean, there's just so much stuff going on right now. Yeah, there's so much stuff going on, obviously. Um, from the expert's perspective, you'd like less stuff to be going on. That's the yeah. uh, goal of your work. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's kind of a, a broad thing. But um, in terms of whether it's interesting, it sure is interesting. Yes. Yeah. So I, I wanted to talk to you a number of things. Well, first of all, you have this wonderful uh, idea, you know, about what Al Qaeda's strategy was, and you say that you liken it to the rumble in the jungle where. You know, Muhammad Ali is going up against uh, a more powerful opponent and, you know, rather he basically just pisses him off and gets him to punch himself out in the first couple couple rounds. And he goes up against the rope, the rope-a-dope kind of strategy and lets him kind of like punch himself out. And meanwhile, the ropes are absorbing most of the blows. And then uh, after he's exhausted, he kicks the shit out of him and like, you know, takes him down eventually. So, and that this was Al-Qaeda's strategy all along, right? So, uh, do you still, do you feel like that is, was ISIS's strategy as well, or, or terrorism in general? No, I don't feel like it was ISIS's strategy. Uh, I think ISIS did a lot of things right from their perspective. Um, I think that tactically, uh, they were a brilliant organization. I mean, they're still around, let's be clear, and they're still pretty strong. But they're like the opposite, um, and it was fascinating to watch the two organizations and especially um, the way people interpreted them. Um, and, and I want to talk about the interpretations because you talked about how this is a fascinating time, an interesting time to be a terrorism analyst. It certainly is. And I think that, that one of the reasons it's interesting to be an analyst is that often the field ends up misunderstanding what's going on right in front of it. But ISIS, for all their brilliant tactics, strategically, I do not think they were adept because they could have taken that territory in Iraq, Syria, and they could have held it for a lot longer. There's a lot more they could have accomplished. But instead, um, their strategy was to take on more enemies and to, to hold territory and to absorb blows from all sides constantly. So when they made their first push into Iraq, the very first thing they did after capturing that territory is they betrayed the groups that helped them in their advance into Iraq, groups like Jaish Rajal, uh, Tarakat Naqshbandiya, or JRTN. Uh, they then 
you know, they weren't being attacked from the north. They weren't being attacked by um, the Kurdish regional government and their military forces, which are called the Peshmerga. And so right away, ISIS launches a major offensive to the north, attacking the Kurds and drawing the Kurds into the conflict. And then what do they do? They find um, this group that's completely militarily irrelevant, the Yazidis, completely military irrele- militarily irrelevant, and they decide to commit genocide against them, and they behead Americans, and they end up drawing the U.S. into the conflict. You know, the U.S., the Obama administration, did not want to go back into Iraq. That's the last mm-hmm. thing they wanted. But best I can tell, it was the gruesomeness of this genocide that really got the Obama administration involved. You could see that even from the first airstrikes. The very first airstrikes were to stop ISIS from going into Mount Sinjar and massacring the Yazidis. So it's definitely the opposite of al-Qaeda's strategy. And now to to turn to al-Qaeda briefly, because the rise of ISIS really draws this out. ISIS wanted you to think that they're everywhere. Um, There's one instance where they fabricated control over a Libyan city of Derna. This control of Derna got widely reported in the press, but it was never true. And we can talk about that PSYOP campaign because it's super interesting. But they really wanted you to think they were taking over the world of jihadism. This was a recruiting strategy to them. Whereas Mm -hmm. Al-Qaeda, surprisingly to a lot of people, took on the opposite strategy. Rather than trying to make you convinced that they're strong, they tried to convince the world that they were weak. They they basically yeah. agreed with ISIS that ISIS was taking over, at least in their public propaganda, in part because it got them off of the counterterrorism radar, um, off of the, the counterinsurgency radar. It put ISIS at the top, and it allowed al-Qaeda to reposition itself. So um, the rope dope strategy, I think, explains a lot. It's, it, it is what al-Qaeda... Um, did for you know up until bin Laden's legacy I'd say it's not quite what they've been doing for the past you know five years or so in part because uh, they've been able to redirect a lot of kinetic attention away from themselves Um, but strategically I think al-Qaeda is doing a lot right the final thing because I mentioned how analysts view these if you if you look over the past like 2014 2015 2016 there is this widespread view uh, that Really, the world of jihadism was t- was tilting in ISIS's direction that major al-Qaeda affiliates like al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and al-Shabaab in Somalia might defect. That didn't happen. And I think that in part you had a, a lot of uh, major observers buying into the propaganda campaigns of both of these organizations. So how we interpret them, I think, is very relevant to um, getting on a better footing in combating them. Yeah. Well, I, one thing I, I found really sort of striking in your book, uh, Bin Laden's legacy is, legacy is when I was comparing it to, in my mind, to to ISIS, where, you know, we've had uh, here in Canada, we've had a number of uh, young people who got radicalized over the Internet and they just go over and they join ISIS. And then your descriptions were just I mean, they were kind of almost hilarious in a Monty Python way. Like your descriptions of Al Qaeda, their admissions process, where they would ask, you know, what is your like relevant experience, and it's almost like applying to get a job at Google or something. And they, you know, going through the and they they have vacation time and like, oh, you know, if you're a bachelor, you can get a round trip ticket home, or you can use your vacation time to go to the Hajj, and like, like it's just hilarious. It's like they're offering you their benefits package. Whereas ISIS seems to be much more of a kind of taking raw recruits, 
uh, who are very young and have practically no skills and they're just sort of uh, teaching them, right? And getting them to, to do... I mean, that, that seems like a, a big difference, right? They, yeah, uh, they're both very bureaucratized, but as you're alluding to, Al-Qaeda was much more selective. Um, and we know about how... <laughs> We know how bureaucratized ISIS... Navy SEALs versus the Marines, yeah. <laughs> well, so Mark Stageman um, describes um, Al-Qaeda as being um, you know, more exclusive, harder to get into uh, than Harvard. Um, <laughs> right, which which isn't quite right, right? Like, uh, because it, it's based on percentage admit, admitted. And uh, the reason why that's not actually quite right is because uh, you know, based on percentage admitted, you know, some years McDonald's will be more exclusive than Harvard, right? Lots of people self-select out and don't apply to go over. Mm-hmm. But at least in terms of raw admission percentage, yeah, it's it is more exclusive than Harvard. At least, um, at least it was. Um, these days, Al Qaeda is in more places and it has more organization, you know, more organizations, more affiliates than before. But ISIS had a real quality control problem. Uh, on the one hand, um, you know, I mentioned how I didn't think their strategy was very good and i definitely would stick by that but it was effective at some things one thing it was effective at is drawing a lot of people into the organization and they were able to uh, create a pace of attacks you know in europe even in the u.s and canada uh, that we had not seen before from a jihadist organization inspiring people in the west Uh, part of that is due to their use of social media but they had a quality control problem and I, i remember back before twitter was pulling them off and mass, which you know now it's hard to find ISIS guys. There, there was this period where I could not get on Twitter without seeing you know, some idiot holding up a severed head and taking a selfie. I mean, they, yeah. they reveled in the kind of, of massacres that they carried out, um, and you know eventually the organization actually seemed to try to implement some quality control to prevent people from you know putting up their severed head selfies on Twitter. <laughs> Well, I mean, we uh, we listened. My wife and I listened recently to the New York Times podcast Caliphate, which I know you you had a hand in that, right? They consulted with you on that, or uh, to some extent. Uh, uh, no, I mean, I've, I I talked to uh, Rukmini Kalabaki, who made Caliphate um, somewhat frequently. Uh, she's a friend of mine. Uh, she didn't specifically. I mean, she she might have talked to me for some of the. Um, information that helped to form the backbone of that but i wasn't uh, an official consultant or anything okay well i i listened to it and it, it was absolutely fascinating and i mean one of the things that uh she of course highlights in that podcast is the the theatricality of you know their beheadings and all the the sort of the various ways in which they were killing people and that this was the entirely the intent it was to create a spe- a spectacle to scare people and to attract new converts, like look at what you know, look at what badasses we are. But, but one yes. of the, there's a number of questions I wanted to ask you about today. But one of them is something that is I, I've been interested in this probably for all of my adult life. Um, I, I don't want to go into too much detail, but uh, let, let's just say you know, based on your first book, that you and I have a, a lot in common. <laughs> but, uh, but um, I'm fascinated in how in how completely normal people 
uh, you know, people who were raised by baby boomer hippies like you and I, uh, people who like can some can just get sucked into these radical movements, whether it be the weathermen, whether it be, you know, whatever, like any kind of radical movements. I mean, what do you think is going on? What is the attraction of these movements? I think, I mean, it's going to, it's going to be different for, for any person based on circumstances and personality type, but like looking at, you use us as examples. So looking at, at our personality types or backgrounds, and you're saying they're somewhat similar. Uh, Very. I, think, I, I think part of it is, you know, a large part of it is we live in, you know, a complex and extraordinarily flawed world. Um, and, I think um, one thing everyone, you know, one thing most people want is they want answers, um, you know, and a lot of the shows um, previously, especially uh, the coddling of the American mind that you did with, with Jonathan Haidt uh, touches on this. I mean, I think that, that people really want easy black and white answers and, you know, um, oftentimes, um, you know, there are organizations from different perspectives that can offer that. Um, for um, jihadist groups, you know, it's through a theological lens, but it's a theological lens that when at its most effective, you know, intersects with the flawed world that we live in. Um, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, they're both utopian movements that uh, propose themselves as this, that their, their caliphate, their implementation of Sharia, as um, the solution to the flaws of modernity, the weatherman is instead, you know, far left with, um, you know, its own particular perspective of of what can cure our society of what ails it. But I, I think that's what it comes down to. Um, I mean, the the um, uh, psychologist Ari Kruglensky describes it as a significance quest. Um, I think that's not uh, that. I, I think that that hits on. Uh, what's going on, at least for part of it. I think a, a second thing, though, as well, is the social milieu. Um, you know, initially, a lot of work on radicalization, and, and when I studied radicalization, I did a major study back in 2009, I looked at it through this lens as well, focused on the individual. Uh, that is the easiest um, unit to study. But um, more recent work focuses instead on the radical milieu. And I think that part of that is important you know for me when i was um you know without delving without providing a review of the background because uh, i'll tell you uh, like the book tour made me so sick of talking about myself in that period of my life but <laughs> I, i'm not interested in going into that either yeah, no, no, I I, it's a, I, it's I a good backdrop yeah yeah <laughs> but um <laughs> i, I explain that for why i'm referring to this so elliptically but when i was at the al Harabain foundation which was you know the um the stage for my year inside radical islam um you know, there I was surrounded by people who all, you know, with certainty um, believed in this particular uh, theological um, construct. This is how they broke down the world and having, um, you know, true believers around, whether they're from an Islamist or a leftist or a far right perspective, um, that can normalize um, those kind of views, make them seem yeah. inevitable. And I think that that also is a, a part for people from our background. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's very very odd. I mean, 
There's, I don't know if you've uh, heard of Yuval Noah Harari, the, yeah, uh, of course. the Israeli historian. Yeah, His new book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, it just came out last week, and I, I yeah, powered through it. It's a wonderful book. Um, and one of the things, he has this wonderful metaphor in there, which I, I was like, I, I got to bring this up with David. And he says that uh, terrorism is basically like um, a little fly, and the fly wants to destroy a china shop but the fly is far too small to actually even knock over a teacup in the china shop so what the fly does is it goes and finds a bull and it goes inside the bull's ear and it buzzes and buzzes and buzzes and it drives the bull fucking insane until the bull goes and charges into the china shop and destroys the china shop right and so he says likewise the uh, al-qaeda they wanted to sort of radically destabilize the Middle East and destabilize because they could not actually fight against somebody like Saddam Hussein head on. They would lose. Right. So they uh, they flew into the American ear and buzzed and buzzed on September 11th. And the Americans went and smashed the Middle East, the China shop of the Middle East. And then they f- they flourished and ISIS flourished and radical Islam flourished in there afterwards. Right. What do you think about this uh, this idea? I think it's a good um, it's a good explanation of where we were in two thousand one, and it doesn't really explain where we are in twenty eighteen. Um, oh wow! Okay. Well, so I mean, in twenty eighteen, you just have a much more powerful. You know, a, you have the destabilized Middle East as a backdrop, um, but you also have a much more militarily competent movement. You know, ISIS was able to override entire cities. Um, so you know, from from one. You know, you kind of, you'd have to go country by country, but you know, in Libya, I don't think that um, that. Well, I mean, you go through those destabilized countries. There's Libya, there's Somalia, uh, there's Yemen, there's Iraq, Syria, and um, in Iraq, Syria, and Somalia, um, they can sometimes outfight uh, the um, conventional militaries who they're up against. Particularly Somalia, where you have a fairly weak Somalian. Uh, national military and then uh, African Union forces, and you've had bases overrun there, like literally bases overrun with hun- with over a hundred soldiers killed. Uh, in Iraq, wild. Yeah, in Iraq, Syria, ISIS was able to fight as a conventional military. It was able to capture cities, um, and um, the Al Qaeda affiliate, which has been done by a number of names, but uh, one of them is Jabhat al Nusra, currently controls Idlib. Though you know, there's an offensive coming soon where they're going to lose control of that city. Um, it didn't fight quite as well as a conventional military as ISIS, but the fact that it's able to hold Idlib for an extended period is indicative. In the Philippines, uh, the city of Marawi last year was held for about five months by um, a local al-Qaeda affiliate. So all of that means that, that I think that that analogy of, you know, that it's a fly that can't even knock over a cup is just not not really true in 2018. Um, so it's an outdated metaphor. Okay, it's Yeah, it's one that I think, uh, you know, is pretty good for 2001, but like I think that the term terrorism can kind of confuse us here because terrorism is a specific thing. It's attacks against civilians um, for the purposes of advancing a political or or some other agenda. And um, what what these groups primarily use in the region now is not terrorism. If you look at at the vast majority of people killed by ISIS in Iraq, Syria. It would not be through terrorism. It would be through um, conventional military force, through um, you know torturing and executing hostages and things like that, which generally don't fall under 
uh, the definitions of, of terrorism that we use. It would be torturing, killing hostages. Um, you know, perhaps you can say it's terrorism. Perhaps you can say it's a war crime. But they're becoming much stronger. Um, I tend to use the label of violent non-state actors because I think that better describes the the variety of things that they do. You know, ISIS confined us in conventional military. Um, it functioned as a proto-state, a highly bureaucratized proto-state. You know, it has its yeah. own, own internal police force. It engaged in smuggling. It had uh, a hacking division, which was not really competent, but was quasi-competent. Um, and increasingly we see organizations that are very hybridized in that way. Yeah. No, I mean, but, okay, w there was a, a kind of a sit-down a number of years ago because here in Montreal we had uh, a number of students, you know, the same age of students that I teach, right, sort of in between the ages of kind of 17 and 21, and had a, a number of students who had actually, like, got money together and were going to head off to go to to try and get into Syria, Iraq to join ISIS. And the our our equivalent to the CIA CSIS found out about it and stopped it. And so we had like kind of a sit down with a bunch because I've been teaching on terrorism for a long time and on this kind of stuff. And so they had a sit down with a bunch of people and the question was how do we explain what's happening? And what's it was what's fascinating is immediately my sort of progressive friend profs, they were like, well, this is because of racism and it's because of failure to integrate immigrants and failure to uh, that, you know, these these young people feel alienated from Canadian society. And so that's why they're being radicalized. Well, as it turns out, when they've ever when they've actually looked into the uh, the young people that join these groups very often they're not the kids that were they they come from happy homes with loving mothers and fathers they uh, they don't ex they they're very popular in school they're not getting picked picked on they're not victims yeah. of Islamophobia or racism this, this is a complete progressive fucking myth yeah. you know and like so um, once once we had sort of unpacked that explanation we were all sitting at the table and we were just we were lost because nobody had an alternate explanation but i i feel like you do can you sort of tell me what you think you're what's going on here sure um i'll i'll speak first to to the myths and then i'll i'll break down the way i look at it um you know, what, what they bring, what they put their finger on is not a complete myth. I mean, I think there certainly are cases, I think, where discrimination is a primary driver. Um, the myth is that it's always the primary driver. And, you know, look, as someone who, like, I have a PhD, I, I, I'm not, I mean, I've taught it, I've taught at the university level, but I'm not, I, I don't self-describe as an academic. Um, and to me, you know, the reason to go after a PhD, the reason to be an academic, in my view, is because you actually want to understand the thing um, as opposed to wanting to push um, kind of your own ideology. And it's it's interesting yeah. to me you know, in such conversations how um, kind of data flies out the window and people are propounding things based on their own political perspective, which to me <laughs> is antithetical to the academic exercise, but obviously yeah. it's, it's, it's dominant in across academia uh, these days. Yeah. Um, in terms of... So in terms of... Um, how to break down radicalization. You know, there's different... <laughs> so we'll start with the metaphor because there are different metaphors used for radicalization. Early on, 
the primary metaphor being used for radicalization was that it was a process. And I, I've, I've used the terminology process um, in some of my early work. It's criticized these days, and I think properly so, because process assumes that there's a single linear kind of radicalization. Um, and so there, then a second metaphor being used is that of pathways, which suggests that there could be different processes or different pathways mm -hmm. into radicalization, that there's not a single process that people go through. Um, then uh, my colleague, Mohammed Hafez, who's at the Naval Postgraduate School, now suggests using the term puzzle, uh, that that hasn't really caught on. Re I tend to use pathways. Um, I think mm -hmm. that there are different distinct pathways where if you understand the pathway, you can kind of get a sense of what's motivating somebody. And there's one that's clearly just an ideological pathway. Uh, and by ideological, you know, it, you know, usually it's primarily religious. Sometimes it's a little bit more political than religious. Um, but there's one where people are true believers, and that is their pathway in. Um, there's clearly one based on... You mean that in the, the kind of the Eric Hoffer true believer sense? Yes, like... absolutely. Um, okay. And it's that that's a book which I think is is very much worth reading for anybody. Required reading. Yeah. Required reading. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, there's one that's ba yeah, there's a minor pathway based on sense of adventure. Uh, David Hicks, the Australian, um, I think fits uh, that particular pathway. Uh, a few other people do as well. There's one that's really grievance based, and that's where you, know, you talked about discrimination or political anger. I think that that clearly is is a distinctive pathway. Uh, there's a pathway, particularly in conflict zones, based on uh, based on money. Um, David Kilcullen talks about you know the the ten dollar Taliban, you know the guy who's paid uh, to place IEDs, and he's in it just for the money, just to feed his family. I think that one um, exists. That's not a primary pathway for North American Westerners. Um, you know, for in in Europe, maybe a little bit uh, with some of the intersection of criminal networks and uh, jihadist networks. But I think it, you know there are different personality types, different sets of circumstances, uh, different pathways, and um, you know, I mean, to, to so to get back to kind of the initial question, maybe part of the problem when people are sitting there feeling um, puzzled as to what in the world could cause this is the search for one you know single. Um, deterministic answer, um, and I, I find that um, particularly, like, particularly in, in the West, we tend to be squeamish about kind of discussions of, of uh, religion and religious motivations and the like for a variety of reasons. Some of them good, some of them bad, but you know that has to be you know part of the discussion. I'd say it's a it's a fairly distinctive pathway. Talking about it is not the same thing as vilifying an entire faith, but you know, given that you know the virtually everyone. Um, who is uh, who falls into the jihadist camp? You know, talks up religion as a motivation. Um, I think one at least owes it to themselves to um, seriously interrogate this idea that you know vol a voluminous number of jihadists are putting forward. Yeah, no, I, I I'm so glad you said that because you know that I I love Karen Armstrong. I've I've been a great admirer of her work for years, but her last book just. Oh my God, did it annoy me. Her book, Fields of Blood. And it's just, in her book, uh, anytime there's religious violence, it is always a function of something other than religion. It's always masculinity issues or anti-modernism or like, it's always anything 
you know, status anxiety. It's anything other than religion. So she basically, it's it's a sort of a a long, very learned um, example of the no true Scotsman fallacy. Like it's right. sort of like you know, anytime there's people doing like terrorism or terrible shit in the name of religion, they're actually representing something else they're not religion which which i you know people like you and i who've had some actual first-hand knowledge of what religion's all about i think we're more inclined to take the religious imagination seriously absolutely and to realize and to realize that like sometimes that is a, a very powerful motivating force right yeah and i i have um I, I'm less of a Karen Armstrong fan than you. I I don't think she's a very good religious <laughs> historian. Um, but I was trying to be nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'll just be frank. I, I don't think she's a very good religious historian. Um, but I mean, part part of my issue with her in her actual religious history is I, I, it seems that she's very much of the school of thought that all religions are fundamentally the same, which which is actually yes. not true. Um, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it would be remarkable. Like nobody, only an idiot, would sit down and say, "Of in the world of philosophy, all philosophers believe the same thing, right?" They they don't. You know, mm-hmm. Plato does not believe the same thing as Nietzsche, who does not believe you know the same thing as you know Aristotle or Descartes. They believe different things. Yeah. Um, it would be remarkable if you had you know eight major world religions say, and like all of them actually held the same thing. They have differences, and like mm-hmm. that doesn't mean some are good and some are bad necessarily, but they're different, and like their founders do have very different principles. Um, now, one can argue what kind of implication that has in the 21st century, right? Because in, in some cases, when you're 2,000 years or 1,400 years from the source, ideas change over time. Systems of belief can change over time. To some extent, there may be some shared humanity that we all have that seeps its way into what religious thought will mean. But these are religions born of different societies. They have different implications. Um, and so, yeah, so I think in part out of the, the, the view that all these religions teach the same thing. And you know, moreover, there's a second fallacy that's embedded, not just that they teach the same thing, but that all of them are good, right? That what's good <laughs> is religion. What's bad is not religion. You know, mm-hmm. That's one of the major fallacies, I think, in the way Westerners look at religion. So one of the books I really like, which I used in my dissertation, is Scott Appleby's book, The Ambivalence of the Sacred. And he talks about two fallacies regarding religion. One is one that is not prevalent these days, though in the 1990s. Well, it, you know, people do make this, people do argue this. Like, you know, you have, uh, you've referenced before um, some of the new atheists, for example. So some people do argue that everything that comes from religion is bad. Though I think, generally speaking, that's an argument that is somewhat tempered. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if, you, if you look throughout um, you know, various New Atheist writings, I don't think they make that extreme a form of argument. Then there's the argument, which is much more um, prevalent among the intelligentsia, which is that everything that comes from religion is good. And I think this is one of the most ignorant arguments. I mean, if, if you look at... Um, it's like a Joseph Campbell legacy or something, yeah. Well, so if you look at... at yeah, I mean... For Armstrong, I mean, I think if she were debating against any of the major, if you're debating bin Laden or Zawahiri or any of the major Wahhabi scholars, they would, you know, they would kill her. Not literally, maybe literally too. They would would completely destroy her arguments. They would destroy her in the debate. And that's not necessarily because they're right, but their level of knowledge is much greater. Similarly, within Christendom, I think someone would be foolish to say that the Dominican order, which, um, you know, brought the Inquisition 
is ignorant about Christianity. Now, my view is that they do not represent <laughs> like what Christianity is meant to be, but that doesn't mean that they're not Christian or that the Inquisitions did not have religious motivation. So understanding, you call it, call it the religious imagination, which I think is a, a good way of putting it. You know, attributing something to religious belief is not the same thing as an indictment on a religion. It just means that religion can be used for good. It can be used for bad. And the fact that something is used for bad doesn't mean that it also doesn't have some sort of religious root. Yeah. So, I mean, when young people, like if, if you were, for instance, I mean, you, you run uh, a an organization right now which does consulting on counterterrorism what what's it called again valens global valens global so if if for instance if the school board or the quebec government were to uh, and they actually have talked about doing this by the way if they were to call you in uh, to sort of consult on how we could combat radicalization here in quebec um, you know, what kind of stuff would you tell them that they could do? Well, so first of all, I'm actually going to turn a, a 180 from where we were because okay. you know, it's from my academic hat to my consultant hat. And I actually think that your role is very different in the two. Um, as an academic, I want to understand you know, what are the motivating factors. When you, when you actually intersect with public policy, something else comes up, which is that most policies put in place will be abused in some way. Um, and not as, not because <laughs> yep. people implementing them are bad, but that's human nature. People aren't going to understand the guidelines being given. And so even though I'm talking about religion really is a powerful motivating force, I certainly wouldn't begin there because that's the thing that's most, you know, not only is it sensitive, um, it can lead to kind of stereotyping, negative forms of profiling, and just end up with, um, you know, abuses that you don't want. So, um you know, to break this down and, and you know, a, a problem like this, this isn't exactly how I would um, do it because this is off the top of my head. But probably to break it down, the first thing that I would do um, is look at the various radicalization cases. Um, and, um, you know, if I were coming in, I would have access to all of the files. I would try to typologize them based upon what the core motivation and what the extenuating factors were. Um, and then I would map out where are the points of intervention. So if you look at points of intervention, you know, one point of intervention is the family. Um, if someone's coming from, you know, uh, a radicalized family, you know, you had the Hodder family, for example, in Canada, as one kind of notorious example. But if someone's coming from a radicalized family, the family is not a good point of intervention. Uh, maybe the school is a point of intervention. Uh, maybe other students are a point of intervention. Maybe the police could be a point of intervention. Um, and I look at what the signs were, like, in other words, what are the points, what provided evidence that this person um, had a problem, that they were in trouble. I mean, the ideal thing that you want to do, of course, it, um, you know, one thing that I um, believe is that very few people um, are born evil, irredeemable. Um, I mean, leaving aside philosophical questions about the nature of good and evil and is human nature bad, what I mean is that most people aren't born markedly worse than the rest of us. Some people certainly are. Right, you do have sociopaths, psychopaths, and the like, but, um, but they're they're less they're they're at the most generous estimate, they are at most at most sort of one point five percent to you know, to the most if you really expand the definition maybe like coming close to two percent of the population so yeah. there's no way that all of this evil that has happened in human history could have been done by 
you know, 1.5% of the human population. So there's got to be a lot of normal people doing some fucked up shit. I mean, like, yeah. And, and so ideally what you want to do is, is give people that opportunity to step back from the brink. Um, I, mean, I, I, I do believe strongly in, in kind of in de-radicalization pro- programs. So that's probably how I, I would, how I'd scope it. Looking at points of intervention, looking at what the signs were. Um, another thing that I worked, um, in the for the um, Department of Homeland Security as a senior advisor uh, to what was then called um, you know, the director for what was then called the Office for Community Partnerships, which uh, does domestic CVE or countering violent extremism work. And one thing they have is community briefings, which can help to alert communities to danger signs. And those community briefings did lead um, in a number of cases to you know actionable tips um, or you know tip them off to people who. Um, you provided tips uh, related to people who really were a community danger. Um, I think that also um, providing uh, awareness um, about the problem uh, would be another important part of it to help to foster those points of intervention and doing so in partnership with relevant communities, be they schools, be they the the local Muslim community. um, That's how I would scope the problem. That's how I would address it. What you want to do when you're acting kind of putting on a policymaker hat is I think it does make sense there to steer away um, from controversial policies unless there's a reason to believe that that touching upon them will be very effective. Yeah, well, there's, you know, just to sort of circle back to what you said about the the Australian, you know, the sort of desire for adventure and things like that. The um, I don't know if you've checked out Francis Fukuyama's new book, Identity, uh, but uh, it's I've, I've just started it. I'm a couple chapters in, but it's very interesting. And he basically says that um, a, a lot of liberal thought has basically overlooked something which was obvious to to a lot of ancient thinkers, for instance, Plato, which is that there's a certain kind of there, there's a faculty of the human soul, which is uh you know, the, the ancient Greeks described it as thumos, right? The, so we have the ancient Greeks believed that we have three different parts of our soul. There's the sort of reason and, um, and then there's passion and appetite, right? And so the appetite is kind of represented by the sort of everything below the solar plexus, right? The, the groin and the stomach and everything. And then the passion is sort of represented by the, the lungs, the heart, the chest, and then reason, obviously, by the by the brain, and that we we all have these three different parts of our soul, but people are are ruled by different parts of their soul. And there's uh, there's about you know in Plato's estimation, because he was a total elitist, about ten percent of the population are ruled by passion, and what that means is that they have a deep desire for uh, they're lovers of victory, you know, philonikos, and they. They, they are motivated primarily by honor and shame. So this would be like, you know, the, the guy who gets into the stock market or gets into business. But, you know, the money's just the score, basically. He's not really interested in spending the money. He's just interested in making it because it's the score, right? Or, And his argument, uh, I think, can very easily be applied to the problem of terrorism and to say that, you know, perhaps the more comfortable a society gets, materially speaking, you're always going to have a certain percentage of people who want more, who they want, they want, um, they seek transcendence. They, they seek kind of struggle in some way. And so terrorism is one way in which, 
you know, some people are going to find it by going bungee jumping on the weekends and skydiving and, ski, you know, skiing off of like triple black diamonds. And some people are going to find it by like, ex, you know, taking massive amounts of drugs at a rave. And some people are going to find it by joining ISIS, right? I mean, wh- what do you think about that that argument? <laughs> that's, that's interesting. So um, <clears throat> embedded within that, when you're breaking down the, um, you know, appetites, uh, passion, I assume that you're referring to Plato's Republic, right? Of course. Yeah, which yeah. Um, <laughs> very uh, interesting. I, I really enjoyed Plato's Republic. One of the things um, which struck me there, he breaks down the different types of man. Um, and yes. you know, there's democratic yeah. man who's completely ruled by his passions. Um, and there's, there's um, tyrannical by man. By his appetites. Yeah, his appetites. Yeah. Democratic man is ruled by, he's an... He's an uh, Epicumenides, a lover of appetites, lover of comfort and gain. That's democratic man. Right. Yeah. Appetites. Well, appetites and also passions. Right. Uh, Plato. You know, Plato um, explains there how he can flit from. I mean, and th- this is not what Plato says, but you know, flit from like being a skier to being a chess player to like he just he, he basically has a whim and he'll follow it and then he'll have a different whim the next day. Um, yeah. One interesting thing there is is it, it's very clear that tyrannical man and democratic man are actually the same thing. It's just tyrannical man is democratic man with power. Um, <laughs> it, it is. I mean, if, if you look at it, you'll see they're both mm-hmm. just pursuing their appetites. It's just that tyrannical man is able to exercise power to um, pursue that appetite much more. Um, anyway, this is, sorry, this is an aside, but that was the thing that was most striking to me about the Republic when I, uh, when I read it. Um, so I think that, that it's, um, you know, it, it's, an interesting theory. Um, I think that uh, that some people, you know, yes, for some people that will be their appetite. Um, what their appetite or their passion drives them toward is, is terrorism. And like in the case, as you said, of David Hicks, I think for the majority of people who uh, take por- part in terrorism, they're instead cause driven rather than being adventure driven. Basically, if you're adventure driven, there's easier ways to exercise your passion for adventure. Right. Like it's much easier to be a U.S. Well, it's not easy to be a U.S. Army Ranger, but it's easier to be a member of the military um, than it is to you know, join a terrorist organization for a wide variety of reasons. And, um, you know, in, in both cases, there are lots of boring things you'll have to do, you know, cleaning latrines and the like. But, you know, ISIS made people do that, too. ISIS needed to have its cooks. And, you know, if you, um, if you trust the accounts of, you know, everyone coming back from the war zone, all of them claim to have just been cooks when they were over there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I guess I guess what uh, the implication in Players Republic, uh, one of the implications is that there are there's always going to be a minority of human beings that have this kind of this this love of this philonikos, you know, this love of victory, this really strong kind of outsized capacity for uh, honor, for feeling honor and shame, for being insulted, for wanting to be first, um, and and so these people basically, the the implication of the republic is that if you don't give these people something to do. Uh, they will like they will mess up your society. So if you try and create a perfect society that takes care of everybody's needs and is very sort of everybody has like you know pizza and and like Netflix and comfort, well, there's going to be some people in that society who want more than that and they want uh, transcendence. And if you don't provide outlets for those people, 
they will be trouble in the future. And so that's why you'll remember in the Republic, they, you know, the kids are raised in these kind of kibbutzy, yes. like communal daycares. And they specifically pick out the kids that we would now call sort of kids with ADHD or the, the shit disturbing kids. They pick those kids out and those kids are put in a special program to become the future guardians of the Republic. But they, they pick the kids that are defiant, that are passionate, that are like that talk back, that have spirit, that have thumos. They pick them out and they put them in a separate stream. And so I, one of the things I, I was teaching on the Republic last semester and I kept thinking, you know, I think if Plato were alive today, he'd probably say a, a good percentage of the people that are getting involved in these radical movements, whether it be Antifa or whether it be ISIS or whatever, there are people that uh, probably they they should become firefighters or they should become, you know, they should somehow have been channeled into fields that would allow them to express that sort of thrill seeking or, you know, and, and I mean, Fukuyama also says in his book, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm early into it, but he says that identity politics the power of identity, identity politics is that it pushes those buttons, that sense of outrage that we have been disrespected. We have been, you know, it's like you remember that the Malaysian leader when he stepped down and he gave that whole long speech about how everywhere in the world uh, Muslims are being humiliated and Islam is being. You remember that, that speech yeah. he gave? Like that was like classic, classic um, pushing all of the thumos buttons in some people, right, that are, are sort of predisposed to react to that kind of thing, right? Yeah. And I mean, I, 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 so I like this. This is, I think this goes beyond the sense of adventure point, right? Like, it's it's touching on um, a number of things uh, related to, to passions, um, you know, various triggers. And I think all of that is, um, you know, in, in the pathways that I outlined before, uh, I would put a lot of that in the grievance pathway but it, it's it's larger than that now i mean the one you know hesitation i have as a social scientist is just um a lot of that like i think there, there's a lot that's that that really works in that schema but it's also um you know it's one of those explanations that's hard to falsify um like i, I don't i don't know how you would test for that or how empirical proof could could bear it out but as kind of a philosophical explanation to move from kind of the empirical to the philosophical, yes, there's a lot to it. Yeah. Well, no, I think the way you could test it is to look at, right, if you take like uh, people like Jordan Peterson, who are really interested in the branch of psychology that looks at certain fundamental personality traits, right, and where you score on sort of openness to new experience, conscientiousness, you know, all these various sort of fundamental traits that I, I think there would be some people, if this, if this, if Plato's right about this, then there would be a strong correlation between the kind of people who get involved in terrorist organizations and people who are very high on certain traits, like very high on conscientiousness, very high on, uh, kind of ability to sort of get outraged by by particular situations and that those would be the kind of people sort of like, uh, you know, to take a, a biblical example, if you look at when uh, Moses, right, first incident, he was a murderer, right? And that that and he got angry when he saw a um, a fellow Israelite being 
brutalized, right? By the, and that that was actually what he got angry and enraged at, at the disrespect being shown uh, to a fellow Israelite. He killed this this person, right? So that that kind of the sort of person that has a strong capacity for uh, you almost almost like altruistic. Um, altruistic anger. So, sort of like when I imagine like Theodore Herzl, right? Who sort of considered by many people to be the father of modern Zionism. You know, that, that amazing image of, of Theodore Herzl, who was a complete secularized French Jew, somebody who completely bought into the idea of, of the French state and, and we are like the, bought into the revolution, everything. And the idea that we're all like kind of French now, and then him sort of being there in the crowd, watching them humiliate Dreyfus, right, and rip off his medals and throw and humiliate this this French Jew on completely trumped up charges in the military. And this is the moment that he is so outraged and, and filled with indignation that he says, you know what, it doesn't matter how much we assimilate, we're never going to be considered truly French. And we need our own state, right? I, I wonder how much that kind of sort of Theodore Herzl kind of that kind of capacity for um, embodying group outrage plays into terrorism. Yeah. Um, no. Again, it's it's interesting. I mean, you're you're talking about personality types, and yeah. Um, you know, obviously, um, some terrorists can who are are captured can be. Um, interviewed, um, you know, the capacity for group outrage. It's I'm not sure. You know, anyway, I I, I guess the point I, I would make. I I agree with you that there's testing that can be done to kind of underlie that theory and look at it. It certainly makes intuitive sense in terms of personality type. I mean, but you you also um, in uh, your last interview. Um, you know, one of the the topics that came up is that most people, um, you know, involved in atrocities are, you know, are doing them are are just kind of normal people, and that atrocities tend to be the work of you know normal bureaucrats, right? So, um, yeah, uh, in Christopher Browning's term, ordinary men, right? Right. The, the the guys who were working the concentration camps and working the Einsatzgruppen, they were completely normal. Family men; they weren't even members of the Nazi Party, <laughs> right? And and obviously, you know, when we're talking about, you know, we're talking about um, the specific militant groups that I focus on, jihadist groups. They haven't been, in most places, normalized to the extent uh, that you know you have ordinary men going through. Though we do have a huge problem right now in Iraq, Syria, with kind of this generation of kids who, for years, were educated in ISIS schools. Right? That that's a situation in which this. Um, wicked ideology really was normalized, just like in some societies, whether it's you know, Nazi Germany, uh, present day North Korea, you'll have certain things normalized that really um, should not be. Uh, anyway, it, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, my own answer as to the theory is, is you know, I just I, I don't know. Um, you know, <laughs> as you know, I, I'm not a psychologist, but any psychologist um would tell you that they'd be doing mal they would be committing malpractice to um to analyze from afar that that that's yeah. just something that that they don't do um 
the vast majority of people in these groups never, you know, never get captured, um, in part because of what a mass movement it is today. Um, and, um, you know, there are some people, there are some terrorists who people have had the opportunity to interview and reach conclusions about, and, and those are significant. Um, you know, generally speaking, a few years ago, people had kind of given up on the idea of searching for the terrorist personality type. But I think that that probably was pre- premature. I mean, it seems to me like, you know, the, the argument, there's no kind of standard profile demographically or personality type wise, um, is true at a very non-granular level. Like it's true that you have people from all socioeconomic status, uh, all, all kinds of socioeconomic status, all kinds of, of um, education levels, though, although uh, generally speaking, terrorist groups, um, at least uh, prior to ISIS's rise, have tended to be the work of the elite, right? They tend to yeah. be yeah. Uh, higher in terms of socioeconomic status, higher in terms of education, with the exception of the IRA or the Irish Republican Army, which doesn't fit that bill. Um, I think that today that wouldn't fully hold true. Um, you know, there's Shabab in Somalia. I think that ISIS, you know, it attracted people from all strata, but also um, a- attracted people from lower socioeconomic strata than Al Qaeda did. At any rate, you know, you've you had this kind of giving up on the search for a terrorist personality. One thing that really perhaps would, would again, reinvigorate that search is just the advent of big data. And, you know, social science um, is the search for you, you have a hypothesis and you either prove or disprove the hypothesis. And, and you know, you form a data set. It's very limited data. And part of the, you know, the beauty and danger of big data is you get a whole universe of data and you search for patterns within the data. And sometimes you get things that are unexpected. So I, I expect that in terms of what you're talking about, um, in terms of a terrorist personality type, that we'll see a breakthrough in that. Like, there may honestly, there may already be some breakthroughs in that. Social media companies may have detected something. If so, they're not really going to say because they don't want to creep people out. <laughs> uh, yeah. Really, uh, they don't. Um, yeah. you know, even if it's kind of looking at people who are known terrorists within their data, uh, they're probably going to be somewhat tight-lipped about that. But I think that um, you know what you're talking about. If you kind of break it down by the personality types that. Um, you know, epitomize Thumos um, and, you know, epitomize, um, you know, that personality type within um, Plato's Republic that you're referring to. Um, I think that, that, you know, it's, there are ways to, there are ways to test that out. There are ways to bear that out. I mean, I'd certainly be interested in the answers. Yeah. You mentioned the, the IRA and I just, I, it's funny because here in, um, in Montreal, you know, growing up here and there's an Irish neighborhood, like, very Irish neighborhood where I grew up and they would have fundraisers for the IRA and it was completely out in the open. And in fact, this is one guy who lived in my apartment building when I was a kid. He's an incredibly nice guy, he kept fish, you know, like tr- tropical fish. And like every time he would like go away, he would like have me sort of he, sort of feed his fish and stuff like that. And I, but I remember he was a big IRA fan and like uh, he had like, a, a big sign on the wall in his apartment and it was a it was a quotation from one of the leaders of the IRA after they had tried to I think kill the queen or something like that and it said like um uh you got lucky this time um but you have to be lucky every time we only have to be lucky once yeah or something like that and he had that up on his like wall and I remember you know at the time you know when I was a teenager Mickey Rourke 
when he was in nine and a half weeks, he got paid all this. He gave a million dollars in a very public way to the IRA. And there was this just kind of acceptance of of supporting the IRA for a long time in Canada and the United States. And then, of course, after 9-11, um, that just, it was weird. Like all these people in, in South Boston and in Montreal and Philly were like, oh, right, that's what terrorism actually funds, right? So, and suddenly the money all dried up. And then the sort of forensic accountants stepped in and sort of started going after these like bogus charities that were funding it. And so my, my question to you, I mean, I don't want you to give away too many secrets here, but how, how are terrorist organizations funding themselves now? Because I'm mystified by this. Um, so various ways. Um, you know, let's start with ISIS. Um, and ISIS uh, did not get a whole lot of um, outside support after its rise, best I could tell. It certainly had donors. But once it reached the point where it was basically like a state, um, it had a variety of ways to fund itself um, using state-like apparatus. Uh, one thing which a lot of noise was made about was its, uh, its oil. Um, and it did sell oil. Um, it, the, the amount of money it made was sometimes a bit exaggerated, but it made money through oil. Um, it seized banks when it captured territory. Um, it got into the sale of antiquities as a way of funding itself, and it taxed its population. Um, some people would call it extorting, uh, but it taxed its population. Uh, those, those were a variety of ways that it made money. Uh, Al-Qaeda continues to have donors. Um, you know, there, there are continue to be charity organizations that, that finance Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda also, though, has... You know, we talked about these two different models that Al-Qaeda and ISIS have, uh, where Al-Qaeda um, was, you know, ISIS wanted to make you think that they were everywhere. Al-Qaeda wanted to make you think that they were nowhere. And Al-Qaeda has been able to pivot off of ISIS. Uh, you know, they thought that after the defeat of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was ISIS's predecessor organization in 2007 to 09, that that was a real blow to the Al-Qaeda brand. And so they've pivoted off of ISIS, showing that they're less extreme than ISIS, trying to change the way people view them. Uh, they also pivoted off of another major conflict in the region. They've pivoted off of um, the Iran GCC conflict and have inserted themselves into theaters where this conflict is it looms particularly large, like the Syria theater, uh, the Yemen theater. In Syria, Al-Qaeda's local branch, which now has you know a number of uh, points of difference with the senior leadership of the organization, but they'd received they'd received state support from Turkey, uh, from Qatar, from Saudi Arabia, and U.S. arms ended up in their hands. That's documented. I wrote, wrote about it in the Daily Beast. The U.S. was not directly supporting Al Qaeda, to be clear, uh, but uh, you know, given the way Sunni rebel groups work together. Um, Al-Qaeda got its hands on a lot of weapons that the U.S. had sent over in its um, uh, program to support Syrian rebels, uh, which is one reason I um, very publicly opposed that program. Um, now, when you look to other organizations, the IRA was never designated right, uh, by the U.S. government. Uh, you had certain parts of the IRA, like the real IRA, um, get designated. But um, the IRA itself wasn't designated. Um, you know, you're certainly familiar with, you know, for other terrorist groups like LTTE, that had a huge fundraising apparatus in Canada. You know, Canada mm -hmm. was the largest, um, the largest country that supported LTTE, uh, the Liberation Tigers of Tamal Ilam. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, LTTE would extort businesses, would extort Tamil business owners. They would have donors. Um, you know, LTTE did get smashed by the Sri Lankan government. Uh, you know, they came to a very bloody end a few years ago. Um, at some point, um, you know, I, I, I would not be surprised if you have another Tamil insurgency uh, in Sri Lanka. Uh, but point being that even post 9-11, uh, you know, terrorist financing continued. And in many ways, um, you know, in many ways on the Al Qaeda side, uh, they're kind of back in business in terms of cash flows. Um, and you're going to get there are other ways that are, are developing, right? Cryptocurrencies, people have looked into a lot. <laughs> That's exactly what my next question was. Well, so, okay, so studies have been done on that. Yeah. And, and not a whole lot of terrorist financing comes through cryptocurrencies at present. And cryptocurrencies, there still are ways to monitor where the cryptocurrency is going. You know, because of the way a blockchain is set up, there is like you you can actually kind of if cryptocurrencies were being used to funnel money to a certain account, you could follow the blockchain back and it creates a permanent ledger where if you mm-hmm. um, if you de-anonymize some of those accounts, you'll actually be able to you know trace the financing pretty well. Um, some terrorist financing does go through cryptocurrencies. In the future, we may see more, especially for currencies like there are certain currencies which have tried to. Um, reduce the transparency of who's putting in, who's taking out. Um, that's you know because that's the main the main way that that with a cryptocurrency, if it's anonymized, that you can um, you know catch someone for financing a terrorist organization. You look at the entry and exit points, and um, some cryptocurrencies have tried to um, make it harder to find people in terms of the entry and exit points. Anyway, the answer is so far it hasn't been used significantly. Uh, but it's something that, that we certainly have looked into, and there's potential there for cryptocurrency to grow as a um, as a mechanism for financing these organizations. And it and it could be really scary. I mean, it could provide them with a way of sort of getting around all this stuff. There's a, a, a Montreal journalist named uh, Kenny Heckman who actually at the you know just after the Taliban took over in Afghanistan, he went over to to Pakistan and he basically got himself uh, smuggled over the border into Afghanistan and he managed to, to sort of romp around Afghan- Taliban Afghanistan for a while before he got captured. Uh, but uh, he was eventually captured, he was tortured for a while, uh, but they eventually, um, in a very public incident if you google him after this interview you'll see what i'm talking about a very public incident he was sort of they released him they they concluded that he really was just a journalist rather than a cia spy or something like that so they let him back but i remember like i've had long conversations with him about uh, his sort of adventures in taliban afghanistan and one of the things he said was he, he just could not believe uh, how much they were funding their operation um through the heroin trade that there were just like massive like he said there were so many fields huge fields of poppies at like all over the place and they were um they were basically funding their regime a great deal off of like basically selling heroin to the west and funding their their supposedly kind of radical religious regime on like feeding you know which strikes me as incredibly hypocritical, but you know, whatever. So my, my understanding is that they were taxing it and that they were policing the heroin routes, that they weren't... So, okay, so they're actually, within jihadist circles, there's um, a... 
there's a line of discussion of this. And um, the conclusion that some jihadist theorists reached is that it's legitimate to sell drugs to the West because it's a tool of warfare against Western states, but it'd be illegitimate to do so in Muslim countries. One can debate whether that's um, you know, good <laughs> it theology. It sounds like that, that scene in The Godfather where they're like, whether they're going to deal drugs or not. And he says, all right, well, I don't want it in white neighborhoods, you know, but you can deal it in the black neighborhoods. You ever that scene in The, yeah. the Godfather movie? Yeah. Um, but, but what you're putting your finger on actually, um, you know, both A, yes, the Taliban did get um, a lot of money through uh, through the drug trade, whether it's selling directly or taxing the drug trade. But that's another thing I, I, I would point to. Um, not, not just, you know, so we were talking about terrorist groups before, but like when you broaden it into violent non-state actors writ large, um, the drug uh, the drug trade, um, if you look at, at, at um, large drug trafficking organizations, um, you know, they're, you know, I think that the, the drug trade overall is something like 300 billion dollars i mean it it is a massive operation you know a lot of it is uh, in our hemisphere um run by dtos in in mexico uh and uh, central america um but you have a large illicit economy and um if you look at other things that are in the illicit economy, um, they intersect with big issues and you know, provide clear ways that a variety of violent non-state actors, including terrorist groups, uh, could finance themselves. One thing the cartels have moved into in Mexico is human trafficking. Right? You used to have, uh, when people were entering the U.S. through Mexico, you used to have these, this old coyote system, people who'd guide um, irregular migrants up through the borders. And large, the cartels have largely started to squeeze them out. In part because, um, you know, this. In part because parts of, of northern Mexico have become so dangerous due to the cartels that it's made it unsafe for the old coyotes to travel through it. So the cartels have benefited <laughs> from that by now stepping into irregular migration. We have uh, more refugees than than ever before. Um, there's about, um, according to. Um, uh, statistics: You have about 60 million people who are forcibly displaced in the world. Over 20 million of them are are refugees. Um, you know, IDPs, internally displaced people, don't leave their country. Refugees do leave their country. Um, plus, you have you know economic um, and uh, ecological migrants. Um, there's going to be there's a there's already a big tra- big trade that's developed there, and you've had these sometimes sophisticated, sometimes local organizations arrive that are part of the human um, human smuggling trade. Um, in some cases, you've had organizations like the mafia come in and exploit them. And, you know, um, in Mexico, in Europe, um, some irregular migrants have been forced to serve as drug mules or have been sold into sex slavery. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a very big illicit market um, out there that, um a variety of uh, unsavory sub-state groups could exploit. Yeah. What do you think the chances are in the sort of coming decade or in the future? What do you think the chances are of a terrorist organization getting their hands on some weapons of mass destruction, like getting their hands on some, some nuclear weapons from some, I don't know, you know, somewhere. I mean, because like you look at like this crazy, you know, Kim Jong-un, North Korea, and people have to pay him so much respect. You know, it's really just this like tiny country with like, it's this fucked up country, but he gets like, 
you know, the red carpet treatment from the president of the United States because he's got nukes, right? So, I mean, I'm sure every terrorist organization must be looking at this and thinking, you know what, we really need to get a couple of those and then we'll get some respect, right? So what do you think the chances are that they'll get their hands on, on some? So um, when we talk about weapons of mass destruction, you're, you're um, just honing in on nukes because when you talk about other kinds of, of at least things that are classified as WMDs, like chemical weapons, we've seen terrorist groups use chemical weapons. Um, I, you know, over the next decade, I would bet heavily against nukes. Uh, there's a lot of, of technological barriers. Um, you know, first of all, um, you know, they're hard to, for a terrorist group to build, um, you know, in and of themselves. Though they become easy, a little bit easier each year. Um, there's a limited number of regimes that might, you know, that might give them to terrorist groups. Um and you know, most of those regimes, the chances are very low that they would want to give a, you know, a nuclear weapon to a terrorist group. Then you have delivery issues. Um, you know, suitcase nukes are extraordinarily large. I mean, that's a it's a misnomer. A suitcase nukes would not fit in a suitcase. Um, it's not. I think it's a concern. Um, it certainly is something that um, I you know, advocate us staying apprised of and keeping a handle on. You know, initially when Al Qaeda was set up, it had a number. You know, it had a weapons committee, and one of the weapons that the weapons committee was assigned within its massive bureaucracy was nuclear weapons. I do think they still have a desire there, um, but I don't think. I think it's it's unlikely uh, that within the next decade you'll have a terrorist group actually get their hands on a nuclear weapon. Okay, you've also. I mean, one of the things I find interesting is you you say right in um, Bin Laden's legacy that. The, the goal all along, or one of the major goals, was to, because, you know, bin Laden believed that they had, uh, you know, much as a lot of sort of conservatives say, and I'm not saying I don't agree with this, but they say that, you know, Reagan defeated the Soviet Union by sort of playing chicken with them and getting them to sort of spend themselves into bankruptcy on the nuclear arms race. Uh, bin Laden had a, a sort of a similar myth, and he thought that uh, he had, um, that they had bankrupted the Soviet Soviet Union by getting them involved in this like ten year sort of struggle in Afghanistan, which bankrupted them, and so he thought, well, we can do this to the other superpower, right? And so you you talk about how this is this economic motivation um, was clearly stated many many times, and your your argument, if I if I understand it correctly, is that we need to be careful not to that we have to be more targeted. Yes. Right. We can't we can't be stopping Al Gore at the airport or like, you know, like we can't, as you hilariously mentioned in your book, right, like that uh, we have to be actually uh, being what do you mean by being targeted and how do you do that without basically riling up people's senses of sort of racism? Um, well, it's I, I would say it's actually um, already being done to some extent. I mean, that's what TSA PreCheck is. Right, it's it's a kind of profiling. Um, it, you know, it's 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 reverse profiling, in that you're profiling certain people as safe. Um, and you know, I, I think obviously you're in Canada, but I, I think the TSA PreCheck is familiar to you and to your listeners. Mm -hmm. um, well, maybe I it may not be for all of them, so maybe just explain what it sure, is. Sure. Yeah. So t TSA PreCheck, uh, the Transportation Security Agency is um, or administration is responsible for aviation security in the United States. And TSA PreCheck is, is something that, that travelers can do. They'll submit to a background uh, check. 
And um, if they pass the background check, then they're able to go through a, a trimmed down security line, uh, which, you know, where you don't have to take your shoes off. Um, you don't have to take your computer out of your bag. Um, you know, things like that, which are kind of, you don't have to take your belt off. These annoying things that are remnants of past terrorist plots, you have less scrutiny applied to you. Um, that actually is, you know, it's a form of, of reverse profiling, where they're profiling certain passengers as being safe. And, you know, sometimes when you go through, T- if you have TSA pre-check, sometimes you'll still have, you'll be singled out for, for more scrutiny. Um, like they, they don't, it's not that you always get to go through. Sometimes um, they'll do randomized check even in the, in the pre-check line. But that's one way of, of narrowing it down. I think there's other another thing that, that they have in the United States is they have behavioral detection officers, which is was the kind of thing I was getting at and which which has been instituted since then. You know, behavioral detection officers are usually um, like the friendly people who are sitting there talking to people in line and they don't really seem to be doing anything. And what they're doing is they're looking for people who um, whose whose behavior matches up with the kind of behavior that tends to be displayed by those who are trying to traffic something or carry out um, some sort of plot. Um, all th- these are good ideas. It's a way to target a little bit more um, in terms of of overall uh, security measures. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've I've heard talk of sort of taking this into, you know, having like artificial intelligence that would actually be able to pick up on on kind of stress hormones in your breath and yeah. could pick up on body language and you could have this sort of looking at people when they're in line and could be measuring the air around people and could detect when somebody seems to be stressed out for one reason or another, you know, and uh, that's that just blows my mind. I mean, I, I don't... I mean, I don't. I wonder how far we are from that. But, but where do you where do you think sort of uh, terrorism is is going in the future? I mean, you mentioned, I, I, but your book has been around for a while now. The Bin Laden's legacy. You said that you thought that um, the future was going to be sort of smaller attacks. You know, kind of death by a thousand cuts, kind of thing. But I mean, your your whole mantra is you know Sun Tzu, right? Know your enemies. Yeah. So, where do you, where do you think um, terrorism is moving in the future? Well, uh, let me say first of all, I'm glad we're talking about Bin Laden's legacy. I'm actually doing a um, an interview uh, in a couple weeks on another podcast called the Loopcast, uh, which is just focusing on you know, Bin Laden's legacy seven years after. Um, yeah, that was a book which which kind of um, it's interesting the evolution it went through when it was first published. You know, it was this book that people thought was um, you know completely implausible. Um, that like, yeah, I remember that on some of the radio interviews I would do at the time, people would you um, mention the name Bin Laden's legacy. The subtitle is why we're still losing the war on terror. And they'd say, OK, why are we losing? Because this was 2011, right? We had the Arab Spring, which a lot of analysts you know, very loudly proclaimed had killed jihadism. Then Bin Laden died. And so people were, you know, people thought that, that you know, this was just farcical. And within mm-hmm. this, unfortunately... Um, in the course of seven years, it's gone from being um, this implausible argument to something that now I think is seen as so obvious that, like, why does it even need to be stated? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I read it for the first time this past week, and I got to say, it's like, you know, you read some topical books and they don't age well, right? I mean, like, a year later, they sound like, oh, you're like wincing, right? <laughs> but but your book, it sounds like it could have been written yesterday. It It's so completely relevant. Uh, it, it, nothing about it seems sort of bell-bottomy, you know, like... Well, well thank you. Um, I'm, 
you know, obviously I wish it didn't age well, <laughs> in part because it, it is a pessimistic <laughs> take, but of course, um, you know, yeah. I'm glad that, you know, I'm glad that it aged well, um, you know, as an author and, um, yeah, I'm glad that, that the arguments hold up because a lot of them were very against where the conventional wisdom was when it was written. Um, but that particular point of the smaller, more frequent attacks, um, I think it's in part it's right. It was like more right than I thought in one way, and in part it's not right. So it's more right than I thought in the sense that um, ISIS has perfected a way of making that happen. Um, it's what um, I call the virtual plotter model where um, they understood that, that the confluence of two factors allowed them to create much a much more frequent pace of attack. One of them was social media, where if you go back to when Bin Laden's legacy was written, uh, when they were trying to encourage, when Al-Qaeda at the time was trying to encourage lone attacks, you know, it would place you know, an Anwar al-Aliki video out there or it would put out a two-hour-long video. They, they literally put out a two-hour-long video after bin Laden died and, like, ask for attacks and hope that someone would act on it. Um, you know, fast forward to 2012, 2013 through 2015, um, and, you know, they can find potential operatives on Twitter and start up a conversation with them. Now, the problem with that model um, for some time had been operational security. That, like, if you're you know, at Al Qaeda recruiter on Twitter, and you're talking to a potential recruit, then, uh, you know, he might be on the law enforcement radar. Now, after Edward Snowden, though, and, you know, revelations about NSA surveillance, you got this huge boom in end to end encryption, where John, if you and I are sending emails, um, you know, they can be encrypted and nobody except for you or I can actually see it, not even the company that's sending it. It's responsible for the encryption. And mm-hmm. so the, the virtual plotter model has operatives based in Syria and, and they could, there's no reason for them to be based in Syria. They could, I think that they'll eventually disperse to other areas, but it was operatives based in Syria who would do everything that physical terrorist networks had done. You know, they would um, look for recruits, they'd work to radicalize them, spur them on to carry attacks, help them to select the timing and target of the attacks, and even provide technical assistance, help them in building bombs. And, um, you know, the recruiter models of that about 10 years ago, uh, you know, there's one, um, there's one terrorist in the U.S. who, um, you know, was kind of searching a hotmail account he made for himself to look at bomb making instructions that he'd gotten from Pakistan. But now you can you have uh, an encrypted video chat with an expert bomb maker, and that's a way more effective way to make it happen. Um, so it has created smaller and more frequent attacks, but I think we're we've seen the return also of larger scale attacks: Paris, Brussels, the Istanbul airport attack. Uh, these were larger scale attacks. Uh, and as we look at uh, how, you know, what, yeah, what... The, the producer that Sebastian, the producer of the podcast, um, he was in Paris studying in Paris when that happened. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, you know, crazy. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, 130 people killed on the streets of Paris, people tortured to death in the Bataclan theater. Um, those are larger scale attacks. And you have more open war zones and more safe havens now, uh, which I think puts... A, a, ver- a variety of kinds of terrorist attacks into play. The other thing that it, it does, and this is a change from where things were at the time of Bin Laden's legacy, is the far enemy strategy is not as powerful as it was in 2011. The far enemy strategy, meaning that groups like Al-Qaeda would focus primarily on Western states, um, 
they, the theory was that to topple the near enemy, to top, topple governments like Egypt and Libya and Tunisia, you need to first um, attack their sponsors in the West. Because if you got close to toppling you know, one of the regional regimes, Western states would step in to prop them up. That's no longer as applicable. And, and for obvious reasons, right? In Libya in 2011, um, you know, NATO intervened to topple Gaddafi. And actually, you know, I was reading through, I was doing a review back in 2011, 2012 of Al-Qaeda statements at the time. There was one really interesting statement where Al-Qaeda, where an Al-Qaeda representative completely misunderstood the NATO intervention. He had this long statement about how the West was stepping in to prop up Gaddafi. Right? He thought that, it, that the exact opposite of what the West was doing was what was happening. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, that w- it would have made more sense. I'm not saying we should have intervened on Qaddafi's behalf, but like, it, it re- part of it, I think, is it just was an intervention that, from their perspective, didn't make any sense for the West to undertake. Um, yeah. So it's clear that, that the, the far enemy rationale doesn't really apply as much. They have a lot of opportunity in the region. And for that reason, Zawakari... Um, it's very clear that he's put a hold on any of his organizations, except for Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which is the Yemeni branch, from uh, tar- from carrying out external operations plots, at least for the time being. That could change. Uh, but part of that is all the opportunities that they have regionally. At any rate, I mean, I- I- I'm going to be rereading Bin Laden's legacy within the next couple of weeks in preparation for the other podcast. But, um, you know, I've thought about it, obviously, a lot. You tend to do that with, with one's own book. And, um, yeah. you know, I mean, I do, I, it... it definitely it definitely aged well and as i said it's gone from being i think very uh, counterintuitive um to being almost too obvious yeah i mean one one of the points it's not central to your argument but one of the points that you make which i i really liked i ended up sort of highlighting it often is that uh, it's good to realize that they misunderstand us yeah at least as often and as profoundly as we must misunderstand them. So they make these big errors in sort of understanding what our motives are and what their impact is. So it's, it's a, you know, the misunderstanding goes both ways. And I think that's an important point because there's a tendency, um, and this is, I think, a, a natural human tendency to imagine that your enemy is, is sort of, all-knowing and perfectly diabolical and like you know just very like a a master chess master when in fact uh, your enemy is usually uh, you know just as prone to error and exaggeration and stupidity as as we are right so it's good to recognize that i think that's like that's a good point yeah unfortunately i think that's a, a gap that's declining on the enemy side in part because of the influx of western recruits to these organizations that does provide them with a, a boosted understanding. I mean, I think that, that uh, we're very lucky that Adam Gadon, for example, uh, was one of the, the first um, big Western Al-Qaeda recruits uh, because he, he's you know a Westerner who just did, fundamentally did not understand the West very well and had these kind of quixotic <laughs> ideas about how Western society operated. I mean, he's also from kind of a, a hippie-ish background. His dad used to be this countercultural musician. He was raised on a goat farm. Um, and, you know, he just didn't, you know, not only did he not um, understand American society well, but as a spokesman, he didn't present in a way that would be very attractive to a Western audience. But they have a lot. Yeah, more. I mean, he, he sounds like he learned all of his sort of idea about the West from reading Democracy Now! and Glenn Greenwald. Like, just, <laughs> <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? It's like 
it's a cartoonish view of the West. Like it's not, you know, no, nobody who actually lives here thinks like that. But yeah, the, <laughs> and, it's a, yeah. And he also looks like he learned his rhetoric from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> That's very true. So what is your, this is always sort of a question I, I, I sort of close with, is uh, what are you working on next? Like, what is the next book? What is the next project that you're working on now? So two, two things I'd highlight. I'm, I'm working on a new book, uh, which is called Enemies Near and Far, uh, which is about um, how jihadist groups use organizational learning. Um, one of the big things I focused on, and, you know, I mentioned a couple of times how, Bin Laden's legacy was completely contrary to conventionalism at the time. The areas where I challenged it, I got it right. But it was really frustrating to me for this fairly long period where, um, you know, I was getting things right, but they were I was fighting basically upstream. And um, one of the big questions that I asked myself is, is, is how do we, as analysts, how is it that we get things wrong? Why is it that we misunderstand the enemy so badly at times? And um, I think one of the problems is we often have too static a conception of what these organizations are. Um, fundamentally, um, jihadist groups are learning organizations, and so I'm looking at um, the I'm looking at these organizations from both a strategic and tactical perspective through an organizational learning paradigm, which I hope will help to influence the way we understand these groups. I'm actually finishing up the proposal and three sample chapters. Um, soon uh, i'm set aside all of next week as a a writing retreat for myself uh, the other major thing i'm working on uh, you mentioned uh, my I, I, just, I gotta stop you i gotta stop yeah. you there and i gotta say that that is a very very fascinating thesis because that's i mean if i understand you correctly you're basically saying because this would seem very counterintuitive that you have uh, people who are basically fundamentalist which is uh, that they have these fixed principles and they want to go back. And you're saying that although they are sort of fundamentalists, uh, when it comes to their organization, they're incredibly pragmatic. And they're, they're not fundamentalists when it comes to their organizational model. They're, they're learning and they're very kind of, that's not, uh, that's not an obvious thing. I mean, I know that yes. in the world of business, I've heard again and again from people that people who have learned a particular philosophy of business are often the the worst people in the organization because they're stuck with an old way of doing things, right? So you're saying that they they have a very flexible um, sort of learning way of doing things. Yes, um, because you know, look, they are fundamentalists, and that actually that is a disadvantage. That is not an advantage, um, but it 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 bounds them in certain ways within within the bounds that are set. You know, there's they're able to take on principles of organizational learning. But there are some there are some things which they'll they'll find to be off limits, or some things where they'll have to create inventive justifications. We just talked about the justification for dealing drugs in the West as one example. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, they're, they're learning organizations. I think we misunderstand them when we when we don't see them as learning organizations, and when we don't see them as strategic organizations. Um, so the second thing I'm working on is you mentioned my organization balance global before and mm -hmm. like to me that is is a fundamental project that i'm working on um it, the, it's about four years old um very self-consciously a startup but i have about uh 15 employees right now um and to me i mean we just were talking about the importance of organizational design for the enemy i think 
organizational design for us, you know, for the people trying to stop attacks is important. Um, getting to fashion my own organization in this sphere um, has been, um, you know, it's a huge challenge, a lot of work, but I love it. And I love the team that I've put together. And so a lot of what I'm doing now is really trying, is, is really trying to grow the organization, um, growing some, re- I have some really talented people surrounding me, um, including, you know, young analysts, um, an extraordinarily talented vice president of business operations, who's uh, really helped to revolutionize our internal processes. Um, and, you know, building an organization is um, as, as valuable, as, you know, as valuable an experience, as valuable a contribution, I'd say much more so than any book that I've put together. Um, so that to me is really one of the, the one of my big areas of focus. And, um, it's going to continue to be. Yeah. Have you, by any chance, had any interactions with like the? Uh, there's a, a couple of organizations that work on complexity, and there's the New England Complexity Institute, and there's one another one in New Mexico. But they, I think, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but I, I will definitely. Sort of, if you're not, I'll put you in touch with them because what they do is they look yeah. at problems of of probability. And, and what you're working with seems to me very much kind of a, a problem of probability. And so if you have an organization that is learning and they, ha- they think strategically, well, then you have to be able to sort of map out different likely, uh, likely possibilities that they would move into and then plan for those likely possibilities when you're really in the dark. You know? And it just becomes like a, a kind of a... You, you do guesswork. It's almost like playing that game Battleship, right? Where you sort of, you try and imagine where somebody's boats are, you know, based on incomplete information. But I mean, because that's, it seems to me like some of what you would be doing was, is that kind of, uh, that kind of intelligent guesswork, right? Yeah. And, um, uh, yes. Um, so a couple of things. First of all, I'd love to be uh, put in touch with the New England Complex Systems Institute. I'm, I'm familiar with them. Um, you know, uh, but haven't really been in any conversation with them. I know um, Nassim Talib does uh, some teaching for them um, and yep, a number of other kind of yeah. interesting folks. Talib is, is, is one of my favorite book authors. Not um, we, um, I, I, I really enjoy his book writing quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, getting to, to your question of whether it's, it's kind of educated guesswork in part, when you're inver- when you're interpreting violent non-state actors, that's a lot of what you're doing, right? Because um, you know at the outset that these are primarily clandestine organizations, so there's going to be a lot that they try to keep out of sight. Um, and um, I think a lot of errors is made. Errors are made when we assume that we know more than we do about things that are out of sight. Um, you can see that this in a lot of analytic predictions with definitive statements being made that end up not being true. You know, one way we deal with that is by, you know, is by tracking our own predictive record as accurately as possible and being as honest in assessing it and having, you know, internal dissenting lines. So we can really see where our own, um, you know, our own uh, points of tension are and whether there's a dissenting line of analysis that's beating the main line. I've always been um, extraordinarily uh, vicious about my own predictive record. I mean, as we talked about, Bin Laden, it, holds, it, holds, it holds up well. It holds up very well. right? Oh, like, very I mean, well. Yeah. And Bin Laden's legacy bears that out. But I could tell you all the various things that I've gotten wrong. And you know, one thing I'll always do is think about why did I get them wrong? Um, you know, ranging from, uh, you know, uh, 
even if they're kind of invisible, right? Like one thing which I definitely got wrong was um, the timeline of ISIS's decline. I, I was able to map um, that its decline would come suddenly very well, but I expected it to come earlier than it actually did, right? Like the fact that you know, they had a number of cities fall all at once was not a surprise at all, right? Because we, we'd seen that before. We saw that with the Taliban. We saw that in Gaddafi's Libya. That that happens when the U.S. goes to war and launches massive aerial campaigns. Um, but they were mm-hmm. able to last for a variety of reasons longer than I thought they would. That's something that would have been invisible to most people because I wasn't making public timelines. But it's something which I kind of make apparent because um, – you, know, you have to be honest about your mistakes or else you're just going to repeat them. And I think that's one problem yeah. um, that might certainly my field has, you know, talk about academia before and people with their like different theories about why jihadism is you know, people have to understand when, you know, what they're saying does not track with reality because reality at the end of the day is the ultimate arbiter. Yeah. Well, there's this wonderful line in uh, Yuval Noah Harari's new book where he says, uh, if, if you want your, religion or ideology or worldview to rule the world um i have my first question to you is when did your religion ideology or worldview um, go completely wrong when did it make a big mistake and if you can't come up with a significant answer right away i will not trust you (laughs) and it's it's right on yeah, and he's like basically like if you can't sort of say exactly where, uh, you know, it's a, it, it sort of speaks to what you're talking about with these terrorist organizations that they're learning organizations. That if you're not showing that you're a learning organization, whether you're the CIA or the FBI or CSIS or Mossad, if you're not showing that you you are a learning organization, how are you going to beat a a learning machine, right? A learning organization that you're trying to combat, right? Precisely. Yeah, if you're stuck in a kind of a sort of a group think, right? But anyway, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, when your new book comes out, I definitely uh, would like to have you on again to talk about that. And I will uh, try and put you in touch with the Complexity Institute. And I also, um, if it's okay with you, I will also recommend uh, to sort of friends on CSIS and hear that maybe they should talk to you about how to deal with radicalization here in Canada. But all right yeah phenomenal it was it was really a pleasure joining you and thanks for um thanks for a great podcast all right take care bye for now